Welcome to episode 10, double digits, my friends, of my podcast, Geeking Out. Every episode, I invite a new person to talk about one thing that they're obsessed with that has nothing to do with their job. The only requirement is that they're totally geeking out on it and they want to talk about it. From homemade rock pens to jello covered slip and slides, from retro mint julep cups to sidewalk chalk art, from breakfast club cosplay to video game marathons, tell me what you love, why you love it, how you got into it, and what makes it awesome. Each episode is presented in three chapters. In chapter one, my guest and I will have a conversation about their passion. In chapter two, we play a game I call Trajib, where my guest and I turn each other on to something cool we've recently discovered. And in chapter three, I close the show by talking about music that I am currently geeked out on and why. I believe that curiosity is contagious and that life is better with a soundtrack. So let the geeking begin. Chapter one. Today's guest is Ted Wright. Ted is a word-of-mouth marketing guru and founder of Fizz Marketing, who lives here in Atlanta. We met at a playgroup when our kids were much smaller than they are now, and we became friends because we were the only two dads in the group. When he came over to my recording studio to tape this episode, I assumed he wanted to talk about R.E.M. because he is one of the few people I know who is a bigger fan of that band than I am. But in fact, he had something even cooler in mind. Enjoy. Ted Wright, how are you, my friend? I'm good, Christian. How are you? I'm great. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I like. I have a squeaky chair. If you can hear it, everybody. Uh, that's because you're famous. Okay, t- t- tell me where we are. Um, we are here in lovely Decatur, Georgia, in your cool ass but secret uh, little studio that you have hidden down here. I like that it sounds a little bit like a bat cave. That's nice. It is. It's super cool. That would be cool if it was a bat cave. If we could put this actually underground. Yes. Yes. I have to tell you about the house that I went and saw. This guy spent forty million dollars and he built a bat cave. A real like, back cave? Yeah, a real back cave. It's a little north of the city. Crazy person. And here in Atlanta? Here in Atlanta. Um, he spent a very long time with it. It's ridiculous. But he the drive in, he actually has a fake waterfall. And when you go up the driveway, his little clicker, the water stops flowing. The garage door goes up and you drive in. Oh, my gosh. Oh! The clicker of power. I was like, I want $40 million because I want a bad cave. It'd be great. I love it. So, uh, welcome to the podcast. Welcome Thank to you. Geeking out. So, he, I know the rules have been explained, but I'll say them one more time just to get them in your head so that they, they hold there. Cool. Um, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about something that you are completely into, obsessed with, deep diving on, that has nothing to do with your job. Okay. Okay. So, uh, first, what that does is it beckons that you must describe your job. So what do you do for a living? So I run a marketing company that specializes in word-of-mouth marketing, which is basically getting people in North America uh, to talk to their friends about things that they think are cool. Okay, so that's basically like the internet. It is, <laughs> it is, right. it is the internet, except it's most of that work is face-to-face. So, so, it turns so out- it's without really technology. It, it's It's... How would I know I've been word of mouth marketed to? 
Um, so you would know it by that, but you've got a friend who loves to talk to you about restaurants they love or movies or great music. And they come to you because they know you like restaurants, movies, or music. And they say some version of, Hey, I know this about you. I know this about this thing. You should totally get together. And here's why. And it's the way that humans have been communicating and sharing stories with each other for at least a couple thousand years just happens to be that the America we live in now, most people don't believe uh, that companies or brands tell the truth in their advertising, but they still trust their friends. So this is a really great way to share stories about things. And it's how bands grow. Yeah. It's how brands grow. It's how why you buy one pair of shoes versus another. It's, it's kind of fun. That's super cool. Okay. So um, you're, uh, we've been friends for, for a while now. Just we as have. full disclosure to the people out into the world, and our relationship is one in which uh, our firstborns, uh, uh, children, were in the same playgroup together. That's true. Way back when, right? Yeah, they were like three. Yeah, and I remember, I remember looking across the yard, being what I thought I would be the only man there because you know I had a job being an artist, and so what was another guy doing here? And that was you. So we met there. And so the world, when you close your eyes uh, here in, imagine us here in Decatur, Georgia, uh, Ted and I have known each other for a while, but I really have no idea what you're about to say uh, of what it is you're totally into. So tell me. Yeah, that is true. So hello, America. So Christian's like, hey, come over and I've got three questions and we're going to do it on tape and I'm going to show it to everybody. So <laughs> I, do, I did not know what the questions were until you all listening uh, also heard. So very fun. Um, Ask me again, Christian. Okay. What is it that you are totally geeking out on that has nothing to do with your job? So a thing that brings me just great joy these days um, is wandering around the world of folk art. So, folk art. Folk art. So just, okay. So for describe, all of you who don't yeah, know Christian's face right that, now, his whole forehead just wrinkled. It's like, I wasn't thinking that's what that's you were going to say. That's where we're going. Folk art. So F-O-L-K. F-O-L-K. Art. Folk art. Okay. So also known as outsider art. Uh, back in the day, it used to be known as uh, uh, art brute, if you were French, or art of the insane, because there were a lot of people in insane asylums and prisons that didn't have anything else to do. And it turns out that they were artists and they would produce pieces. Okay. So I first got in touch with outsider art, with folk art, um, when I was a Boy Scout. So in northern Georgia, we were coming back, and there was a guy in a place um, called uh, Somerville, Georgia, and he needed help um, digging out a ditch that had gotten filled up with, like, cattails. And so, and that person, his name was Howard Finster, and the Reverend, or the Reverend Howard Finster. And so Reverend Finster um, was this man, and he... um, God talked to him. He thought God talked to him, whatever. Don't know, wasn't there. And he decided he would do paintings. And so he took his front yard and he created and made something that he referred to as Paradise Garden. And so he drew and wrote and painted just how he felt he should be doing this. And what is so amazing to me about folk artists and do this is that some are trained and most of them are not trained. Most of them just pick up a brush and like, oh, this is kind of fun. But when you see their pieces, it's so obvious that if they don't express themselves and get this out on canvas, their head's going to explode. 
And you can just feel, I mean, you're a, you're a singer songwriter, you know, people like, look, if I'm not singing, I'm dying a little bit on the inside. Like I have to write this song down, even if I don't ever use it, even if no one ever hears it, if I, I'm doing this for me. So there's a whole bunch of artists, and interestingly, a lot of people are in the American South. Um, also, uh, there's some Midwestern and there's some California, but they're all sort of very different. And, and they just do this art because they have to. And the first time I saw a Fenster piece, um, a band that I know you and I both uh, greatly, greatly enjoy, um, Howard Fenster did their album cover because Michael Stipe saw some Fenster work because uh, where Reverend Fenster lived was not too far from Athens and they'd seen each other. And he was kind of famous in the, in the very early 80s, late 70s. Uh, the art world was kind of fine to me. And I totally remember seeing that album cover and going, oh, that's pretty cool. And then over, over time, I saw different pieces that he had done and I was like, wow. This is really interesting. And I've always liked art. So do you remember when we were growing up? Remember those Richard Scary books? With all the little, there were all the little animals that like drove the little trucks around. Like the inchworm <laughs> was the fireman. Oh, yes. yeah. That's remember right. that? And there were always in every illustration, there was like 20,000 things going on there. So a lot of outsider art has a lot of little tiny details all over it. And my... ADD addled brain. I really like like lots of different stimulus and I like lots of different things going on. So about five years ago, you know, I had a couple of extra dollars, you know, in my pocket. So I said, I'm going to buy a Howard Finster piece. And so for me, like I just am going to go buy one. And so I talked to some people and it's kind of hard to find his work. Reverend Finster is now passed and it's some of his like extraordinarily expensive. Um, so somebody told me about this auction that actually happens once a year, and it is the greatest art auction in the world, and it is uh, for, for folk art and outsider art, and it is in Buford, Georgia. Really? Actually, it was just this weekend, and it is literally in a shack, and this guy opens it up twice a year, and it is, it's like a garage sale for every artist you've ever seen in this genre, and it is craziness. And so there was this Fenster piece that somebody had dropped, and they were going to cut it They're up. Dropped as they in... dropped it on the ground and it had broken in half. Because oh, okay. Reverend yeah. Finster didn't paint on canvas. He painted on stuff that he just found on the street. Or So this is a piece of like old drywall that he had done this great painting on. And then somebody had dropped it. So it had kind of broken in half. And it had a big section missing. And somebody said, oh, we're just going to cut this up and make keychains out of it. And I said, you are not. And (laughs) they're like, oh, what's going on? Who are you? And I introduced myself. I said, if you put it in the auction, I promise that I will will bid on it. And nobody wanted what was basically the art version of a piece of trash. But it was beautiful and wonderful to me. Mm -hmm. And so I bought it for like 800 bucks. And that was the first Finster piece, and it still hangs in my office, and it is not the most lovely thing that has ever come down the pike, but I love it. And so from there, I've kind of taken off, and my wife has uh, you know, kind of come along with me. And so we broke it out into sort of professional artists that will sell you stuff, but also people who do busking on the street or even are panhandling. Sometimes they make signs in order hmm. to... Um, basically announce what they're raising money for or what they're doing or explaining about their lives. And so now I travel a lot for my job, not quite as much as you do, Christian, but you know, enough. And so now I travel always with a $10 bill wrapped around two Sharpie pens with a rubber band. 
and I buy people who are buskers or who are, you know, asking for money on the street, I buy their signs from them for $10 and two Sharpies. Because you can always <laughs> really? find something, yeah, and you can always find something to uh, write on, but you can't always find something to write with. And they're always glad to, you know, a lot of people are glad to sell their sign for $10. Sure. And I... So this is a sign that maybe they're holding up at the side of the road when you're at the exit, like I'm on-ramp to... 75 here sometimes it is and sometimes it is i'm a musician and this is what i'm doing and sometimes it's you know whatever and i don't buy them all but if somebody is you know just very intent about what they're doing or they've taken a time and their doodles all over the place right so i have one that says you know help i'm raising ransom and i'm 98 cents short and i and i read i totally remember (laughs) right i walked by this guy was in san francisco and i walked by him and I thought about the sign. I turned around. And I said, "How much for the sign?" And it's the first one I ever bought. And so we negotiated a little bit because he had fifty bucks. And I was like, "Yeah, no." And so I walked away. And he's like, and "So ten bucks?" And and he was very happy to sell it. And to which I was then I took it in my hand and I walked back to my hotel. And this guy, <laughs> I get like two streets down, and this guy comes up to hand me a dollar and says, "Tough day." And I was looking at him. Because he looked like I was, I was panhandler, but I was oh, going because home for you the had day. The sign. Because I had the sign in my hand. So, <laughs> so now we have a. So I have kind of this collection, and and what what is interesting to me is that art is everywhere, and you can see art, and so that has kind of led me into an interest again because I travel a lot. I also take pictures of street art. And so particularly if I'm in somewhere with a completely strange time zone for me. So instead of being noon, it's midnight. So my timing is all messed up. So I sometimes in strange places like Paris or whatever, I'll go take a bus or a train way out into the middle of nowhere, uh, you know, right out way out into the burbs and where a lot of artists live. And I'll just go early morning, shoot stuff, you know, take pictures of it. Now, are you talking about graffiti or are you talking about the art that they're painting while they're on the street? Or is it like... So, and, and so that's a lovely, for those of you who are listening who are super into street art, it's like, now we're going to talk the difference no, between graffiti want, and street well, art. Well, I'm, I'm curious. So there's a, there's a whole fight, like what is country music? Oh right? yeah. So, yeah, so yeah, there yeah, can every- be like whatever that is. But, but for me, uh, graffiti is more about uh, tagging or making a political statement. Mm-hmm. And on street art, sometimes people just love to go paint a beautiful thing somewhere. And it has morphed into there are people that professionally paint murals, but there's also people that are artists that want everybody to see their art, but they don't really have a place to show it where that many people can see it. So they climb on top of the building, they just paint it up there. Hmm. And then they walk down and they leave it for everybody. And what is amazing is you see these works out and you're like, you know, anybody could come by at any point and just paint over that. So you're putting all this effort you're putting all this work sometimes you can see you're putting all this emotion all this thought into this and it could be gone tomorrow and so i think that's also kind of interesting that you love something so much that it doesn't matter that it disappeared tomorrow or that it has no economic value to you you just have to go do this thing Hmm. so do you feel like a voyeur when you do this Is, is is it are you like what are you getting off of this is it is it moving energy into you to say, look, I'm looking at someone super express and I love watching that? So, have you ever? I, mean, I think so. I've watched a couple of people. I think where I get out of it is I get, I think it's so fun 
that somebody else loves something so much that they're just going to go do it. I mean, you and I both have careers where it's not really, this is not the really straight path to, you know, even being able to afford anything, much less riches and fame. There's a lot of people that do what we do that never really, you know, make it. So it's highly risky. So I also, I also think it's kind of fun that people went out and did something just because they wanted to. And it didn't matter if nobody else understood. It's like, if this is for me, then I'm going to go do this. And not consequences be damned because that's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit angry. But like, look, I mean, you know, little Tom Petty there, you know, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. R.I.P. Tom, because, oh, so sad when he passed. Such stuff. But anyway, back to art or back to that kind of art. That was is what I think is so interesting. I just really am fascinated by people who love something so much that they are just compelled to do this. Have you uh, have you branched out past Finster? So do you, are you starting to collect other folk art people? And how deep are you? So, uh, so it depends on who you ask. Um, we're kind of running out of wall space at the house. So fortunately, I own the office building, the little tiny office building they're in. So it's also kind of spilling over into that. Um, but we're, you know, we're trying to keep it under the, you know, we're trying to keep it, keep it okay. We don't want to be weird about it. Also, you know, there's, I, you know, so I watch, sometimes I watch this TV show called American Pickers. And, you know, people, sometimes they go from collecting to hoarding. And I'm not really sure, again, where the line is between that. So I'm not like the guy in Philadelphia who loved impressionistic art, whose last name was Barnes. And so he just covered walls with every painting he possibly could get find. And because he was the right place at the right time, he bought some beautiful stuff. But he'd run out of space on the walls, so he started you know, nailing stuff to the ceilings. And <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, the Barnes collection is really famous. That's the one that... Um, in his will, he left all the money to take care of everything, but he said you couldn't move any paintings from where they were. And then they had a roof leak, and there were literally oh, no. <laughs> hundreds of millions of dollars of paintings that by law, because of the way the will was written and how wills are enforced, they couldn't move them. And they had to get a judge to basically adjudicate whether or not they could take these things out from oh, you that's know, fun. where the oh yeah yeah so anyway so people who sometimes collect art so it's it's fun to think we collect art I don't think Christina and I Christina is my wife I don't think Christina and I are art collectors because I don't even know who those people are except you know you see about them in movies or read about them but I do think that we go out and we see things and it doesn't matter if they cost some a little bit of money or a lot so Christina and I we really buy the art and I buy my the art that I love just because we love it. So I probably right now have as many Finsters as I need right this second. Although I did see one the other day. I was like, ooh. But I just, the last last one I bought, he had painted on one of those old school um, windows. Remember those storm windows with the little two aluminum things that you pressed in and raised up? Yes. So he painted a beautiful work on the glass of one of those. So it's easily broken and really hard to display. And so, of course, I bought it because it was a crazy piece that, like, was haunting me. And so I bought it. And then Christine is like, what are we going to do with this? And I was like, we're going to find a framer who's willing to take on the challenge of doing this. And we're going to take it. We're going to display it. And if it gets broken, then we're going to pick up the glass pieces. And 
put them back together if we can, or we'll do something else. But that's what we're going to do because this is a piece that everyone needs to see. And now it hangs by the back door in our house. So uh, my 14-year-old and all of his friends just like run by it every day and kick off their shoes and like, yay. And I don't know if they notice it, but every day I walk in and it makes me smile. That's awesome. If I was trying to get into this, how would I start? Get into art or get into folk art? Get into folk art. If I was trying to get into folk art, how would I start? Like, where would you point me? Is it like a website? Is it a thought? Is it a... Do I have to type in folk art into Google and see what happens? Like, help help me get in if if someone's listening to this. All right. So, for those of you listening, so you want like, well, come over to the house and let me show you some things. That's me. (laughs) America, come on over. Christian will send you the address. It's great. Um, I think, you know, for me, it's just about exploration. So I think I would go to my local museum and I would look at, say, hey, have you got any folk art I can look at? If this sounded really interesting to you. I mean, the interwebs are, is an awesome place. And certainly if you do folk art and you can find a list of folk artists, um, there is a great museum, little shop, uh, nonprofit organization in Chicago that I have been into before. They have 30 or 40 pieces there that are amazing if you like this kind of thing. I mean, some people look at it and it's, it seems crazy. There was a guy, his name his name is Royal Robinson, but he always went by the Prophet Royal Robinson. And the Prophet, um, I don't know because I'm not a psychologist, but he seemed to have had an issue in his early 20s. And so he kind of took a break from reality. And his wife at the time, um, she left because she had had, after five or 10 years of that, she'd had about enough. And for the rest of his life, he wrote about her and drew about her. And he had this, he had an amazing, like almost draftsman-like skill. So he would do these posters, very angry, like, you left me and women are terrible and divorcee. And he would use all these words that people used in the 60s and 70s to refer to these people. And then on the back, he made his calendar and this is what he was going to do for the week. So some of these people, some of these things still survive. So this is a little bit like the Dr. Bronner's label. If you've ever had that shampoo or that yes. soap and you read it and it just becomes preaching and then it goes into like the dark, dark hole of whatever that. Yes. And so, and so actually I, so I only own one Royal Robinson piece because if you read them, they're like super angry and super misogynistic and you would never even think about other people like this. But the reason I like them is because he just had to get this out. And even though it wasn't appropriate, he thought it was appropriate and this is what he's going to do. And there's these great drawings and sometimes the women are like 50 feet tall and monsters and like lasers are shooting out of their eyes and sometimes they're de- demonic. Oh yeah, it's... It's the Prophet Royal Robinson, for you that are listening, go look at him. Uh, but on the back, then he'd do his calendar. And it would be like, and he would just draw straight lines. And he, there's some Bible quotes in there. There's He liked Ezekiel a lot. And so he talks about Ezekiel. And then he would also say, oh, and, you know, got to go get my car at the, you know, at the, at the oil change place. Or, or <laughs> eggs, milk, and butter on one day. And I was like, how great is that that somebody can... Kind of makes you want to just look at the calendar side. Oh well, and so, hang it up backwards. So the one that I have, um, actually, 
had to work with a guy because we had to engineer a frame because that is what I said. I said, I like the calendar as much as the other. And so most people just do the other, but I need to have this both sides. So the frame is actually super heavy because it's glass on both sides. And uh, my wife is Christina, for those of you who haven't met her before. She's awesome. Um, Christina and I flip it every once in a while. She's like, you think we should flip the Robinson? I'm like, yeah, let's hang with the calendar. And it's (laughs) it's way upstairs and so we don't see it. But yeah, so you can see both sides because it's awesome. So, so uh, I I'd say two two more questions. To I'd say where is the line for you? Like you mentioned this a little earlier, like you're you're not really gonna nail them to the ceiling, and you probably are well stocked on what you've your curation. But it sounds like it's a very big passion. So, is there a point at which you start pre apologizing to your son for the amount of folk art you've just purchased <laughs> with his college with his fund, college tuition. You know what I mean? <laughs> like where's the line for what you're doing hey Abbott. at what point do you become crazy at what point do i become crazy i think the point that you become crazy is for collecting probably collecting anything where you start to disregard everything else in your life and there's not much of a balance you know, I'm just thinking about like how many stamps is too many once I have all the stamps or all the cars. I mean, do you really need 15? I mean, a guy who taught me in business school, you know, he has a beautiful collection of Porsche. Um, and, you know, now it's a lot of work for him because you got to keep driving them and you got to rotate them and all the rest of that stuff. So I'm sure there's a point. I'm sure that my son will one day come to me like I recently did with my mother. And I said, okay, she, my mother likes pets. And so I said, mom, you can do anything you want. But the day I walk in here and there's an albino python cruising around the house, that's it. You're done. (laughs) So, so when your son comes to you, what is he going to say? He's like, look, I see that you, you took a screwdriver out and you were trying to take the light switch off the wall to make more space for more folk art. Yes. Dad, <laughs> Dad, you need to sit down. There's there's a number or there's an activity, and if you hit that, then that's it. And you can and with my mom, I was like, look, you can walk up to the line. You want to have dogs that are paralyzed from the back forward, and you're going to take care of them for the next five years, and you're going to hold them every time they need to go outside. Who am I to be in your way if that brings you joy? Oh my gosh! But I'm telling you. And so now, now, and so I told her this like four or five years ago. And so now, every once in a while, she'll say something. I'm like. Mm. Albino python. Just, and so now. It's shorthand for mom, stop it. It is totally shorthand for, you know, I'm kidding until I'm not. And then that's it. That's funny. So have you ever considered becoming a folk artist? Oh, no, I'm terrible. I couldn't be an artist to save my life. I've tried a couple times because I think it would be cool to be able to produce some of these things. And I look at my work and I'm like, that's awful. Do you doodle? Uh, No. I'm not, I mean, I make little boxes. So basically, um, so instead of being an artist, I'm an artistic supporter. <laughs> okay. That is, that, is, that is my job. But I always think it's interesting that people can do things that I can't do. Like you can sing and you can play guitar and you can write songs and you can do all these things. And if you break them down, I mean, Hemingway is a little bit like this as well. You know, if you break it down, none of those words are new. They were all in the dictionary and everyone knows what everyone word those mean. But y'all did that song about, you know, Tennessee, you know, and uh, called into the radio show and tell her I love her and a, a girl called Tennessee. And every time I hear that, I'm like, 
man, think about how cool that must be to take words that we all know and notes that already pre-exist and being able to know how to put them together and evoke a whole story and it runs like a movie in my head. And I, I mean, I think artists are like that. And I think, I think people who are chefs that are like that, like I'm trying to evoke a particular feeling. So I'm going to figure out how to make this cocktail or I'm going to make this food. or I'm going to make this movie or I'm going to write this book. I think, I think it's neat that people can do that because I totally cannot. That is not, <laughs> that is not my gift. So I think it's cool that people can do stuff that I can't do. So I like to hang out and watch. Maybe that's why I like sports too. I, right? <laughs> I I'll never it. be Julio Jones, but dude, the guy can stretch out and he'd stick his feet out there. I'm like, how he do that? And so I will totally pay 80 bucks for a ticket or I'll sit there for three hours on TV and to watch 20 minutes of people do stuff that I can't do. And I mm. think it's neat that they can do it. That's awesome. And I, I, I love that you probably, I imagine you walk around your house and look at the walls and go, that's stuff I can't do, but stuff those people couldn't keep from doing. Yeah, like you really it's do. Kind of, you're you're walking around compulsion, and kind of, I don't know. It's kind of beautiful knowing you, and and knowing uh, that you said this today. This all is a nice, beautiful bow of of Ted Wright. And thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Chapter two, in every episode of Geeking Out. I see if I can trade one thing I've discovered recently with one thing that my guest has discovered. Anything is admissible in this friendly exchange I call trade you. All right, so this is the section of of the podcast that I call uh, trade you. And this section is I'm going to trade you one thing that I'm currently into in exchange for one thing you're currently into. All right? Okay. And I'll go first, which will give you a little bit of time for you to kind of figure out what you want to trade me. I think you know this about me already, that I am a board game guy. I am interested in board games, which is not necessarily Clue or Monopoly. This is like a whole different level and a whole different section of Barnes & Noble. Okay. You know? Yeah. And um, what I have found is there is a new type of game that I didn't know existed until recently. And mm. it has been developed. I mean, it is a new idea. This is not an old idea. And interestingly, I think the idea itself kind of came into board gaming from the computer gaming world. I think it came backwards, which is a very weird way to develop. This particular new kind of board game has a designation. So you'll you'll see the name of the game, and then you'll see this designation Legacy after it. And a Legacy board game um, is a game that changes while you play it. So, for instance, uh, the one that I'm going to recommend to you, and I'm only saying this because it's the the they've just released season two of the board game, right? Ooh, board games come in seasons. Well, now. they do now. That's cool. Um, so this is a little bit like Netflix, but a board game. Okay, okay. Um, season one. The name of this board game is called Pandemic, and it's uh, pa- what you need to get. There's there's Pandemic, which is normal Pandemic, which is a uh, a game in which you see a, a map of the world. And you start at the CDC here in Atlanta, and there's an outbreak that goes on across the globe. And the players are cooperative, so you're not playing against anyone. Okay. You're, you're all playing characters 
they each have different skills or different special powers, and you have to combine them with the, in a certain number of turns to save the world. Okay. Well, then they, they kept saying, well, have you played Pandemic Legacy? I was like, no, I already played it. And they were like, no, 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 no. You got to do the Legacy bit. So I bought it because it was on the shelf. Right. And I brought it home. And what happens is, after the first time you play it, it says, all right, uh, open up box number one. And you dig into the thing, and there's a box with a perforated top that hasn't been opened. Okay. And you open it up, and it has stickers in it, and it has new cards, and it has new rules. Really? And you put stickers on the actual game board okay. on top of things that were already there that you thought that's how it worked. And okay. one of the cards says these are the new rules. Tear up the card for the old rules. Really? So you actually destroy, you tear up the card and you throw it in the trash can. Right? And then now you're playing a game which you kind of know the parameters of, but it just changed. And then once you do that one round, you're says, okay, you're on round number three. Did you survive? And if you survived, then suddenly they're like, open up box number two, which suddenly says, tear up your characters. Throw away this, and these are your new rules. <laughs> so, and here's new stories, and here's new interesting things about where you are. So there's a story layered over the top of the game, which is also changing every time you play it. So you can't go back to the beginning and play it again like you would a normal board game. So uh, Pandemic Season 2 okay. Legacy was released really a week and a half ago. Okay. And, of course, now that I'm a dork <laughs> about this, I pre-ordered it, and it showed up. And I, it, I'm, like, seven games in, and no one can touch it at the house. No one is allowed to because I have to remember where I am. And right, 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 right. So if I had to turn you on to something right now, I would turn you on to the Pandemic Legacy Series board games. Do, do I start with the very first Pandemic? No, you can. So the way that works is when you first open up the box, it says, "Play play a pregame." But for you, do you think, as the person who's recommending this to me, that I should do Pandemic and then Pandemic no, Legacy? No, no, no. Just, just right dive in. Legacy. But just don't start when you get there. It tells you to play two or three games so that you understand the mechanics. Okay. Without opening up any of the Legacy pieces. Okay. And just follow the directions. Yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable what an experience this will be. Okay. Okay, now it's your turn. So I want to talk to you about water. Okay. Because it is, so it has come to my attention that water is not always water, that there's a lot of stuff that floats around in water. And that we use a lot of water, especially here in America, where we're starting to drink less and less soda. And more. I got a little loud there for Christian, just for fun. He has, <laughs> he has, a, he has a Diet Coke thing that he is kicking. Have you noticed? It's, He's it's, kicking. It's kind of gone. There he is. It's gone. All right. Very good. So water's kind of interesting, right? Because it's everywhere. And also you use it in lots of places. Like when you make rice at home, rice is 65% water. Or you're making pasta, or you're drinking, you know, milk is 70% water or 92% water, um, depending on what is you're doing. So, you know, it turns out that we really need to make choices about where we get our water from and what are we doing with that water. So, 
like there's tap water and it depends on where you are and not like Flint, Michigan gross stuff or like, like obviously gross stuff where you got like flames coming out like a Simpsons cartoon, but, or in real life when that happens to people. But, you know, there's, so there's tap water and then you can get water out of bottles and you could do it. Different companies have filters. And then there's this company out there uh, that have, you know, those big machines that you see at the grocery store where you can go up and, you know, you can fill up a gallon jug for oh, like yeah, 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 15 cents or you can get uh, big, those big five gallon things delivered to your house. So it's interesting to me. So somebody brought this up to me about six months ago. And so I've been kind of looking at it and I'm starting to be a big fan of getting those big things of water at the grocery store and then having a dispensary um, at your house and getting your water that you drink and then use out of those. And I'm interested in this and this is for real. I'm interested in this um, because a one like consumption, so average, so I got kind of went down the rabbit hole and looked at a lot of stuff. So water in, if you, if you have one of those dispensers in America, this is one of those five gallon things and you've got the little dispenser in your kitchen or whatever. Um, and it's those ones that you have to take off the top and you have to go really fast, you know, splash all over the floor. Yeah, That's yeah. what we're talking about. So people drink like, like your kids will drink 20, 25% more water if that's just out there in front of them. <laughs> right. And there's, there's a guy out there, his name's Dick Thaler and he just uh, won the Nobel prize for economics, but his idea 40 years ago, which he then wrote in a book called nudge. And basically his concept that he won the Nobel prize for it, because now it has been proven is if you make it easy for somebody to do the right thing, they'll do it much more often. So water is, it turns out we should be, every American should most likely be drinking more water than they already do. And so water, because water is everywhere and because we need to consume a lot of water, water really becomes a choice. Like, why am I drinking water out of this place? And do I need to make sure that that is something I want to do? So an average, so one of those five gallon, if you drink your water out of one of those five gallon things, and that's how you consume much of your water, you are appraised like 1,500 of those water bottles that you buy, you know, in the big case packs. Hmm. And so... And if you get one of those, so there's particulate matter and there's stuff like chlorine and stuff that is put in big lots of water in municipalities. But do you really want to be putting all that chlorine in your body? So maybe you want to use, you know, some company who has a filter where you put the stuff in the top and then the water kind of percolates down with gravity. So that's one way of filtering. But do you want more filters? Because maybe that doesn't take out everything. So do you want a company to filter the water for you? Like you know, one of those companies that has the big water and you just go to Lowe's or you go to, you know, when you're Whole Foods and you just pull one out and put the empty back and you go do that. So water, you really need to think about. So my gift to you is you really need to be thinking about where it is you get your water and how you get your water and what does that mean for what you are trying to do? Like I know you're on the road a lot. Right, so this is why I'm talking to you about you. If there's other no, people, I, lo- I love this. Right, so you're I on do the need road to drink a lot. More water. You need to drink more water, and also you burn. You've told me before. You know, you burn six or seven thousand calories during a show, so you've got water coming in and out all the time. So, what is the quality of the water that you're putting in and out of your system? So, for you, in particular, and America, you can listen in if this works for you too. We really ought to think about it. And for us at our house. 
you know, since we're recommending stuff, uh, we have moved to that big water thing. The giant water thing. The giant water thing. And we're putting it, and we got one of those machines. And my wife does not like the machine, but I put it over in the closet. We drink a lot more water. And for me, and who knows if it's mental or not, but I can, I feel better. I know I'm drinking more water. I'm probably more hydrated. I got them for the office. We, uh, I put four of them into the office. And I ripped and out. Now you when, guys blow through a bunch of water, I bet. And so we're probably blowing through, you know, twenty gallons of water that I know of, probably a week. I accept your gift. <laughs> <laughs> Pandemic and water, <laughs> two things are made for each other. Thank you for being here, man. Thank you, Christian. I, I appreciate, appreciate it. it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Chapter three: Me geeking out on music, the long way. There's nothing quite like cheering for your favorite team. Wearing the shirt, knowing the chant, following the story. You feel like you're a part of something. A tribe. You give the team your support and exchange. They carry the flag and the dreams of winning. Bands from your hometown function kind of like sports teams. If you're from Texas, maybe it was Robert O. Keene or Seattle. It was Pearl Jam or Mudhoney. Portland, the Decemberists, Minneapolis, maybe it was the Replacements or Prince. They're bands from the place you call home. And as they become successful, you cheer them on until they're almost like an extension of you, an extension of your hometown, part of the town's identity and yours. This brings me to Athens, Georgia, and their home team. Not the Georgia Bulldogs, but R.E.M., The culture of going the long way is what has birthed many, if not all, of the significant bands in America. In each of these bands I mentioned, you're likely to hear the same story. A group of people gathered in a basement, played music together for an indeterminate amount of time, invited their friends over to listen in said basement, eventually played somewhere for free, until enough people that they didn't know started enjoying listening. Then they kept playing and eventually, between playing house parties and local clubs and bowling alleys, learned how to parallel park a van in a trailer, make a t-shirt, and even learn to make collections of songs and release albums. R.E.M. started in 1980 and went the long way. They learned which songs made people sing along, which made them dance, which bored their audience to tears, and which songs they had to finish their show with every night. This is them in Raleigh in 1982. Songs for Ann Kennedy. Some people will tell you that you need to learn the ropes, pay your dues, put in your 10,000 Gladwell hours to get there. Truly, in my experience, you're just trying everything you can to get a big break. There's a certain amount of pride when you start to see something from your hometown show up on the radio or even on television. But to get there, these bands are putting in thousands of hours touring and even more making music together. This is R.E.M. three years in on their national television debut on Letterman. Please welcome R.E.M. (laughs) 
R.E.M. actually spent seven albums of time getting better and better and better on an independent label before they ever signed with Warner Brothers and released their major label debut, Green. Their most successful albums actually came as their two follow-ups to Green, Out of Time and Automatic for the People. They were going the long way. You, you can actually hear it if you go backward in their catalog from the sounds of Murmur... Two Fables of the Reconstruction. To Life's Rich Pageant. And then to an album called Document. This one goes out to They released an album a year and toured like crazy. I looked up to people like R.E.M. I came to college in Atlanta in 1988 and was able to not only hear, but actually see the habits that they had formed. I saw clubs where they played and the bands after them that were actually playing the same clubs. College stations that played their music who welcomed new bands to send them music. Bands who R.E.M. had helped that were in turn now helping me. I could actually feel what going the long way actually created in its wake. It created opportunity, encouragement, support, and most importantly, someone saying that this crazy dream is not impossible. I've lived in what they taught from coffee houses to clubs to frat houses across the South to rock clubs in Berlin or even arenas in the Midwest. Work harder to make a better song. Write thousands of them. Constantly try to find a new audience. Understand you may play to no one in each city or country until people start to become fans. Never stop moving the dream forward. Never take your fans for granted. Make a better t-shirt. Help those who come behind you. Be the team from your hometown and never forget it. I still can't believe that my name is even next to their name in the Georgia Music Hall of Fame. I owe them so much as a fan, as a student, as a creator. I'm not sure I would be who I am or where I am without their music. It's a shame that nowadays very few bands get the opportunity to go the long way. No one gives young bands a chance anymore. Even if you have a big break and a successful radio song, if your sophomore album tanks, you're kind of considered over. What if we said, hey, how about you put out an album for a year, for five years, play 150 shows a year, and then decide if you're any good? What kind of music do you think would be created? What kind of culture? There is some good news. College bars still exist, and... People like Luke Combs or Ashley McBride have been playing them and building fan bases for years. The dream's not dead. The technology that many say is a setback to the music industry might be the same technology that can give the next R.E.M. the chance to make their first five records without anybody's help. But most importantly, there are basements everywhere, 
in every hometown that still have dreams in them, where a group of people will make a band and maybe go the long way. If you want to help, find a band, support them, tell your friends, bring your friends. This is how things start. You never know where things might end up. You never know where your favorite song might come from. You never know if something from your own street might change the world. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Geeking Out, and we are all hard at work here on the next one. Are you obsessed with something amazing? Want to tell us about it? Write to us at geekingoutwithkb at gmail.com, and you might be a guest on an upcoming episode. Come find out more about me and this podcast at christianbush.com. Christian with a K. Follow me at Christian Bush on Twitter, Christian Bush on Instagram, Christian Bush on Facebook, and Christian M. Bush on Snapchat. Thanks to Bobby Bones for the opportunity to build this podcast, Brandon Bush for the editing and the soundtrack, Tom Tapley for the audio wizardry, and Whitney Pastrick for being a great producer and making this whole thing possible. This is Christian Bush geeking out. Thank you for listening.